All right, what's up, everybody? You guys ready for a live podcast? There are some uh, some big relevant topics uh, that I'm uh, curious to pick your brain about. And the first one is I would love to hear a little bit about the uh, actual DeSantis Gitmo storyline and backstory. Oh, okay. That's interesting. All right. Well, so I believe that he was deployed as a JAG. That's a military lawyer, basically, uh, for the Navy. But... You know, uh, liaison with the Marines in Fallujah in 2004. And I don't know a lot about what his role was during that, but if he was telling those Marines that what they were doing was legal, I'm not so sure that that's right at (laughs) all. There are two very massive and terrible battles for Fallujah in the spring and fall of 2004, led by General James Mattis. And um, so I don't know what role he played there, but it's certainly an interesting question that should be answered. And then I'm, I'm fairly certain that was first. And then from there, he went to Guantanamo Bay. I might have that backwards in terms of the time there. Um, now, at Guantanamo Bay, the best reporting on this, probably the most solid reporting on this, is a thing from the Washington Post that brought up something that I thought was the most important thing, and I was really surprised they brought this up in the post, but maybe it's just because he's a Republican. They went this far to mention that in June, it might have been July, but I'm, man, shit. No, it was July of 2006. The CIA murdered three guys at their black site at Guantanamo that's like over the hill. It's called Camp No or Penny Lane. And they had stuffed rags down these three guys' throats and suffocated them to death. And then they came up with a story that they com- this is an act of asymmetric warfare against us by committing suicide to make us look bad like we drove <laughs> them to suicide. <laughs> and Ron DeSantis was a JAG lawyer at Guantanamo that night who, according to the Post would have been on the team of guys who came up with that bullshit story and started immediately spinning and covering up the murder of these three guys from the get-go there. It's not that anyone murdered them. They volunteered to die to make the U.S. military look bad. Yeah, that's right. It was a public relations stunt. And so while socks were shoved down their throat, they, they opted for death and committed suicide with socks shoved in throat from other person. That's quite the spin. I, listen, I don't have any indication that Hillary Clinton was there that night. <laughs> Master, not saying mas- that. Masturbating in the background because that's the only thing that can make her come. God damn. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that, though. <laughs> it could have been someone like her. You know, I don't know. Jeez. Um, Where's I going with that? Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you with my nonsense. You were saying that uh, um, three people were killed, and oh, yeah. DeSantis oh. spun the story. Here's a parenthesis, by the yeah. way. If, if anyone wants to Google, there's, the, there's a heroic whistleblower. His name is Joseph Hickman, and he was a sergeant, and he was on guard duty that night. And he was like, what the? And told, and came forward. And um, if you Google it good enough and with my name, you'll find uh, two really Uh, spectacular articles, very deep dives that I didn't write. They're not by me. They're by the other Scott Horton. 
in Harper's Magazine, and he's a human rights lawyer, teaches at Columbia. He was great until all Russiagate crap, but uh, he used to be really good on torture and stuff like that. And he wrote two really great articles for Harper's Magazine called The Guantanamo Suicides and The Guantanamo Suicides Revisited. I really urge you guys to look at. And Joseph Hickman put out a book called, man, I can picture the book, but I can't read the cover. Uh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember. But he also wrote a couple more books. So if you just look up Joseph Hickman on Amazon, you'll see two or three great books. One of them about Abu Zubaydah and one of them about the burn pits, which is how Joe Biden's um, better son, son, yeah, the, the, good better, the better son got uh, brain cancer. Joe Biden likes to say, yeah, my son died in Iraq. Well, he died six years after he got home from Iraq from brain cancer that he got from the burn pits in Iraq. And Hickman told that right, story so, too. Uh, anyway, going, I'm off on a tangent, yeah, but so it's important to those this, murders because no one was ever held accountable for that. They're like, oh, Harper's Magazine, the oldest magazine in America, wrote this big thing about it. Anyway. So going back to DeSantis, we know that he was there and he basically spun the legal story for the in the murder. Well, we don't know that, people. but the Washington Post made it so seem like it way, must be. And then I didn't hear him squawk about it. So, so tell me, tell me, seemed like he would have rather they drop it. I, you know, look I don't know. At just, so far, I just look at the story of there's a lawyer stationed at Gitmo and the lawyer stationed at Gitmo is there to basically represent the United States government and present what they're doing as being acceptable. He's the lawyer for them to make it seem... Okay, I would guess that there are certain positions that you get assigned to and you don't have much of a choice. And then there's other positions where they need to find someone who's on board with that kind of behavior. Like, in other words, if you were to send someone down to Gitmo and they call up their supervisors day one and go, I can't sanction any of this, I have no way to legally spin it, they're going to take you out of there and they're going to assign another lawyer. Yeah. If you're the lawyer that's down there, what that sounds like to me is you're the sociopath that the CIA or otherwise went, oh, this is the guy who's evil enough, who's willing yeah. to take this job. And then he worked down there. I think we know, what was it two years he was down there? Uh, I'm not certain. I mean, he was a junior officer, but he was still an officer. And you're right. He could have insisted no. And frankly, well, two more things about it yeah. real quick. First of all is... There are two different guys who claim that he stood there and said, yeah, this is legal, as they were force-fed during their hunger strike. And I covered all that at the time. And this was not just like, oh, you're in the hospital and they, you know, gently put a lubricated well, tube up did. your nose to feed you. This is, they beat the crap out of you and take a big non-lubricated hose that they just pulled out of the bloody nostril of the guy next to you and cram it up your nose and down your throat and pump you full of Insure brand protein shakes and it was an absolutely brutal process and there are two different former Guantanamo prisoners who claim that and it is two that's good enough for a New York Times story usually uh, who say that he stood there overseeing their force feeding now it was a long time ago and I don't know man I it's certainly I think um, believable and credible grounds for like that open question to still be investigated i'm not sure i'm willing to hang my hat on the word of these two guys what they remember a jag officer with brown hair who stood there and what you know what i mean like i don't know um but i also do know one more thing about it which is i've seen clips of him asked about this stuff and he's completely full of crap and totally justifies it there's no kind of like yeah we learned a lot of hard lessons from those wars and those times and some things there's none of that kind of sentiment at all and when it comes to the murder of those three guys 
he goes, yeah, no, they starve themselves to death. As he even got the story of the public relations stunt wrong. Because the story was that they shove rags down their own throats to death. None of the hunger strikers were allowed to hunger strike themselves to death, or at least that we know They were trying of. to eat socks so that no one else could feed them something else. I guess. But so he, there's an interview with him where he's like, oh, come on, those guys, they starved themselves to death, those three guys. And it's like, well, that's just really not right. So, but it goes to show kind of the sentiment behind his attitude over all of that stuff. And, you know, when they ask him, the guy's such a phony, man. And I agree. I know people are like, yeah, but he sticks it to the commies on some things. And he stood up on the COVID on some, for, you know, better than most, for sure. And that I'm not, like, taking that away from him. But, um, you know, they go... I can't remember. It was on Fox News. It's a friendly interview on Fox News. And they go, it's like a multi-part question about the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is doing this. Russia's saying that. What are you going to do to take care of this conflict? He's like, well, the first thing I'm going to do is we're going to stop this focus on global warming and all this trans stuff. And, and it's like, dude, like we know you practice that and everything, but he asked a specific question about Ukraine. You have nothing. And, and, and of course, the answer is... Not that he's practiced and ready to say tonight. So all he can say is, like, aren't you sick of seeing a bunch of trans guys in the Navy ads? Which, who do you think is in the Navy anyway? But <laughs> All right. So is it fair to say that DeSantis, even though, he was <laughs> even though he was good on COVID and he might be good on uh, some of the woke stuff, he's as deep state evil as anyone deep state's ever been? Dude, he's pretty bad. The guy went to Israel and signed a law in Jerusalem banning criticism of Israel on Florida college campuses. You know, they talk about the left-wing wokest, but there's nobody more woke than right-wing Christians on Israel. Oh, no, you're an anti-Semite if you say that it's not fair to colonize all these people and kill them and steal their land and imprison their children in military prison without trial and all this crazy shit that goes on there. Oh, no. And, and so he goes to Israel to sign a law restricting the rights of the people of Florida. And he's not run right out of the state on a rail. Somehow he's like the best governor in the country. Jesus Christ. Which, and it just goes to show, what is his attitude toward Israel overall? Whatever Netanyahu wants and says, his wish is Santis's command from so, now on. There's no reason to think any better of him than that, dude. So the I, guy's paper thin. Dude. Just to Fuck pivot, because I work for the Israel lobby. And, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> Boy, you infiltrated my ass. <laughs> so to go back to Gitmo, um, every once in a while I see pictures, and what I wish other people would realize is you look at the reckless disregard for human life and I look at that and I go it's tragic that it happened to these people but the reason it only happened to those people is because that's the only people they could get away with it too and they would treat you and I the same way if they could that's kind of the way I look at it and when I look at it's not much reassurance but I agree with what you're saying right so uh, I'm I'm just curious like uh, I'm not to make it too much of a horror story because I do think that if they could get away with it, they would treat you and I that way. That That's the way we would be treated. But, like, what were some of, like, just the other... Uh, I mean, I heard that at one point they... Uh, there were no studies that backed this, but they started doing feeding tubes rectally, claiming that you could provide nutrition that way without evidence. I don't think that that was at Guantanamo. I believe that that would have been at the CIA black sites. 
before they wrapped all that up in 2006 and sent them to Guantanamo. But you have to understand, there was like almost 800, like 770-something guys who were brought there. And virtually all of those guys had been sent home by the end of the Bush years. Never mind anything that Obama did. By the end of the Bush years, they basically admitted that almost all of those guys were nobodies. A gigantic public relations stunt is what they were to make the American people, that there's these legions of these people out there trying to kill us. When all they really were was just regular Afghans, uh, most of them, you know, uh, I don't know most, many of them, simple sheep herders, cab drivers, whoever, that somebody pointed a finger at them for a bounty and this kind of thing. And once they got turned over, the military's like, oh, they must be really bad guys if they got turned over to us, so we're taking them to Guantanamo, and then the assumption is baked in the chain. I could go on too long about this, but suffice to say, the military in this country, they've been around for 250 years. They know how to do a battlefield court-martial trial and figure out who somebody is and what they want to do with them. Not that it's perfect, but they have a system for that. But W. Bush and his men threw all that out. And just made up this crap where they just rounded people up. So then 2006 comes and they take the few actual Al-Qaeda guys that they had captured and tortured within an inch of their life in secret dungeons in Thailand and Romania and Poland and Morocco. And then they brought, as they're sending all many of the innocent guys home, they brought in actual friends of bin Laden and said, oh, see, we got the worst of the worst down here. I was like, yeah, but that was what you said about the guys that you just released. And why do they put it at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, communist Cuba anyway? Because the idea was we have this stolen Navy base that we took in the Spanish-American War, and we claim that we pay them a lease on it, but they won't cash the check. The commies don't want to since 59. They won't take the money. The Americans are just squatting on this base. And Bush and his lawyer's theory was no American law can reach us in communist Cuba, so we can do whatever we want there. And so, yes, it's true that they tortured people at Guantanamo, but, you know, I think, like, overall in volume, not as much as what happened at the CIA black sites. That was where the real horror movie shit went down. Well, at Guantanamo, too, and then eventually all that stuff was exported so, to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and was inflicted on thousands, tens of thousands of Iraqis in Afghanistan for years. In fact, Obama kept torturing them in Afghanistan up until, what, 2015 or 16. So as a lead-in uh, to this next topic, is it true that Durham had been tasked to investigate the torture tactics of the Bush administration? Yes. And basically wrote the report of, yeah, there were some bad things, but let's move on and didn't hold anyone responsible. Right. So we know they won't admit this part. It was in Harper's. We know it, but they won't admit. We got the three at the black site in Guantanamo from 06, the summer of 06. And then we know that there was a guy named Gul Rahman. Yeah. Who... They had chained him to the floor in what was called the salt pit torture dungeon outside of Kabul in Afghanistan, and he froze to death. And then there was another guy who you've probably seen pictures of this guy's dead body before from the Abu Ghraib photos. And this was a guy, you know, they blamed all that stuff on the night shift from the National Guard. But this guy, his name was Abu Jamadi. Abu? I think it was an L. Hang on, there's a... That's the drone coming for us right <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Goddamn hellfire strike. 
Never saw it coming. Are we live streaming this? That'd be cool. <laughs> like, dude, you see what happened to Robbie and Scott? God damn. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, we know, we know exactly what that's like. I told you, it sucks, man. Anyway, now where was I? I got Biden. All right, so, no, I was... Uh, oh, Durham. So, yeah, Durham. so they killed, they killed Gul Rahman and um, Abul Jamadi, and he was hanged with his arms behind his back, uh, with his wrist bound, and then hanged from the ceiling until what it does is it crushes his uh, chest enough that then he can't breathe and suffocates to death. Is it Abdul? Thank you. Um, and... Uh, so he's the guy in the in the pictures from Abu Ghraib with the pretty blonde lady over his corpse going. Um, and uh, so what happened was Durham, none of that was authorized in the CIA memos, you understand. All of this stuff was illegal, but they had these memos saying it wasn't, which were all bullshit memos, but that was what they hid behind. So here's how narrow the investigation was. The investigation was, were there any... Never even mind tortures. Any of the tortures excluded. Were there any murders that took place outside of the memos that would have allowed it? Is there... Well, there's another plane. Hang on a second. <laughs> don't forget your points, Scott. It gets distracting, right? There were memos, so I don't forget. I'll say it again. Memos. Memos. Would you hurry up? <laughs> uh, there were memos that say, if the guy you're torturing dies, we know that you meant well and it was for a greater good and it doesn't count, no harm, no foul. That's true. That's in the Bush lawyer memos from those times. So Durham was assigned to see if they murdered anybody when they weren't covered by the memo saying you can murder people. <laughs> and what he found was... Actually, they did murder people that they weren't allowed to murder, but that we're not going to prosecute them for it anyway. So what had started out as look into CIA torture, turned into look into CIA murder, turned into look into the CIA murder of just these two guys, turned into a preliminary investigation to see if they would have an investigation into that, and then they decided no. So Durham's the cover-up guy. That's Durham. He's the guy that came in to do that. Exactly right. I mean, what were they going to do? They would have had to, they would have had to arrest virtually the entire national security cabinet and all of their lawyers. And Bush and Cheney, the two highest principals, were absolutely as guilty as hell. Premeditated torture and law-breaking shit there. So it's either the heavens fall, or as Obama said, well, we tortured some folks, but we're going to look forward and not backward, because because frankly the you can't handle the truth of what they did to those people. That was the decision right. that was made, that it would have broken the entire system. Because it, it would have amounted to Obama's new Democratic government waging an absolute... Look at what they're doing to Trump now with all this trumped-up bullshit. It would have been a real uh, prosecutorial war this against is, the previous uh, administration. They're not going to do that, and so they didn't do that. These are the storylines, though, that to me are so important to tell because I think people don't quite realize how scary giving up elements of freedom are 
and that we live in a society that's like very willing to give up freedom for security. I mean, we saw what happened throughout the COVID regime and people just don't realize like, listen, the United States, this is what they'll do to people. And so if you fall into the category of the undesirable and you don't have the freedoms that they're not allowed to do this, they will do this. There's no humanity there. You know what I mean? They don't have basic morality that will keep them from it. It's just the fact that they can't get away with it. Look, people go, look, there will never be a nuclear war. You can't worry about that. Dude, they used nuclear weapons before. You know what the conversation was like? You want to use them? Fuck yeah, let's use them. And they use them. They didn't even think twice about it. They didn't think twice about it. Harry Truman, I mean, there were dissenters in the government. But the people who pulled the trigger on it, they were like, shit, let's nuke them motherfuckers. They didn't care at all. And we think that, but now it's impossible for that to happen again? When it was the easiest decision in the world they ever made at the time? Can you give us a... When the pilot of the Enola Gay died, a proud man? I know that you had this in uh, Hotter uh, Hotter Than the Sun, which was uh, the last book that you put out, right? Yeah. Um, But you also had a recap of uh, some of the close accidental calls... Uh, kind of showcasing how stupid it is that we even have nuclear uh, nuclear weapons because uh, apparently there were multiple times that we almost started a nuclear war just as a mistake. So many times, including, and a lot of people have heard these, where in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the Americans were dropping depth charges on a Soviet sub. And the Americans' idea was, oh, we're just dropping the weak, shallow, uh, warning language depth charges. Not the serious kill you kind. And they know that down there. <laughs> but that wasn't it's true. A, an underwater fireworks show right. for them. Yeah. They're bored in their submarines, so That's we'll a, just blast some uh, <laughs> little fireworks. There's even a line in 13 Days where, where Kennedy's calling it a quarantine instead of a blockade and all this stuff. And he's saying, look, this is careful language that we're using here trying to duck. Well, here's our careful language. We're dropping death charges, but the wimpy kind, not the bad ones, you know. Well, down there they were panicking. And these were nuclear subs. And on one, I wish I could remember all these Russians' names and stuff because it's such a great story. The way I remember it, I believe, is that the two senior officers on the sub agreed to launch a nuke at the Americans on the surface. And they were overrode. Or they the the rule was they had to have total consensus. And it just so happened on only that sub. It was the only sub like this. They had a political officer from the Communist Party was on the sub too. And he was like, Nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait. We're not launching the first nuke of this war unless we know that it's on. And we're going to die in this sub if we have to. But we're not starting a nuclear war, boys. And so they didn't. But they were about to. They were about to launch atom bombs. And if a single one had gone off. At that time, that would have been it, man. It would have been full-scale general nuclear war. And America would have, because the war plan at the time was to nuke every single city in the Soviet Union, not just Russia, but in the entire Soviet Union, I guess including all the Warsaw Pact states and China. How does the globe even survive that? Like, how do you not end up with too much radiation for us well, to even... I, I, I mean, I don't the, radiation, know about this. the radiation eventually would dissipate. Right. But it would be the nuclear winter where... You know, the weather drops I'm still quite a few degrees and the crops fail and people starve by the billions. So, like, hum- humanity would not be extinct, but our civilization, our global, you know, different civilizations would be set back thousands of years. quickly when I'm still breathing smoke clouds from fucking Canada. Yeah. I've been well, indoors for a month because of the plastic trees those socialists planted. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it's black smoke, man. Stay inside. <laughs> but right. no, I mean, it would be radioactive for a while. I mean, you wouldn't want to go, like, right to the crater, but... um. 
but eventually that wouldn't be the problem. The problem would be the starvation. All right, so I want to pivot over uh, to uh, Ukraine. And my first question for you is uh, next month, uh, and I know that th this kind of does dip into uh, financial territory, which might not be your expertise, but uh, you've got this BRICS meeting next month, and uh, there's more chatter of uh, nations that are being forced off of the dollar, or even a historic allies such as Saudi Arabia starting to trade in conversation about like a gold-backed currency. Do you think that this is something that like might actually take off and you know these countries are all going to work together uh and maybe we should be concerned about you know the end of like the u.s dollar being a dominant currency or is that just like some you know la la land storyline well that's a real good question man i mean i i definitely am in the middle of writing a history book about this russia crap and so part of it at the end is about the economic war and the consequences of it so I can't say that's the most developed chapter in the book yet, uh, section yet. I have done a, a bit of research about it. Um, certainly, I mean, we saw, I don't know how well remarked upon this was, but we saw, of course, at the beginning of the Ukraine war where the West just said, the whole world's with us and we all are united in condemning and sanctioning and whatever. And the whole world, except, you know, America's Western allies said, yeah, not so fast and really rejected that. Um, and, you know, I don't know all the numbers of the countries and the population percentages, but much of the world rejected that. And, I mean, it's so obvious. You couldn't have had, assuming the prerogatives of the empire, you could not have had worse stewards of the American empire than the Bushes and the Clintons, and Obama just counts as a Clinton, and, and McCain and Biden this whole time. I mean, they have taken this empire never mind the country and just run it into the ground people everywhere reject american power and authority and if you ask the republicans and democrats in dc you guys hear them all the time and and see them all the time they have no idea how much they're hated it's like they had no idea how anybody voted for donald trump it must have been the russians or the racists or the something because it couldn't have been never mind love for him but that people just really hate them you know, people can imagine why would they knock our towers down or why would it, this unprovoked attack into Ukraine? Because they just, you know, have no idea. And, and, and especially the people in charge refuse to ever admit their role in causing any of these crises to happen, you know. So um, fucking what was the question again? Oh, the bricks. So, you know, Fiona Hill gave this great speech where she was like, geez, oh, Fiona Hill, she's uh, one of these horrible deep state Russia wonks. And she said, you know, the world is really rejecting our alleged dominance in reaction to this crisis. And, and they're really taking the opportunity even to move away from us. So that brings up other questions, though. As you're saying, they're trying to diversify out of the dollar, which has been the dominant global currency for major transactions and international government transactions and so forth, major corporations, international transactions since World War II. And, you know, remember, they tried this a little bit in 2008. They said, well, we're going to make a market basket of different currencies and we'll have some yuan and some yen and some rubles and maybe some euros, too, if we can get them to play along. And we'll try to have this alternative. But the problem is every central banker in the world is just like the Fed. That's all they know how to do is print money. So it's not like any of these other currencies that we're talking about are a safe bet compared to the dollar. So the dollar, of course, we complain about it, but as Walter Block would say, compared to what do you want to get out of this? 
Yeah, that doesn't sound great. I think something's <laughs> wrong with that motor, man. Was he just downshifting right there? Someone, someone, someone should call up an airline and be like, "Hey, I don't know who's yeah, coming in, but it's coming in a little bit hot." Yeah, can someone, uh, can someone do me a favor? Up on that counter, I got a package of Zin, and I'm kind of craving some nicotine. If someone doesn't mind. Man, that Dr. Pepper is mine too, man. As there you go. As long as you're running errands oh, over there, Zoe. What is that? I, I'm usually a three. What are you at? What do we got? What do we got? All right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. It's porch store. I live on the edge. You know what I mean? Enjoy yourself a little bit. Yeah. Oh, so um, I saw a funny tweet where um, the the news headline meat flavored, my favorite. <laughs> what is that? Um, it's just like nicotine pouches. Oh, thank you, man. Oh, meat flavored? Oh, well, a, you, you bring this to me after I shove the seven in my gums. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Thanks, dude. Mm, I don't fucking know. Mm. All right, so uh, mm. you, you were specifically... So, yeah. Yeah, I seen a funny tweet where the news was the Indians tried to pay the Russians for, I think, natural gas or oil, I forget, in rupees. And the Russians were like, yeah, no. <laughs> we want dollars or something else. And then so the funny tweet was, yeah, everybody's a multilateralist until somebody's trying to settle their debts in rupees. And now <laughs> all of a sudden, not so much anymore. So if you like put yourself in the shoes of the people of the world, the nation states of the world trying to diversify out of dollars, diversify out into what? And now the recent news was they say, well, it's going to be gold backed. But I, I just don't know enough about it. Well, that remains to be seen how that's supposed to work or whether that's really credible. Got it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, situation. One more. Wait. Yes. Then the theory is, this is supposedly the question, is... <laughs> now the choppers are coming now, for us. Jesus, what is going on here, man? <laughs> if we see a spotlight run... <laughs> I've been really good lately. I've been writing that book like 10 hours a day. Leave me alone. <laughs> there is a children's hospital with a helicopter pad right over there. That might be that. Porch tour. All right. Um, so then the question is whether that'll cause what the Austrians call the crack up boom. And that is where every central banker in the world realizes, oh shit, today's the day, man. And they all try to dump their US treasuries and sell all their dollars and get out of our currency all at once. And then all those dollars come floating back home. And then we have hyper, super duper inflation and all die and our civilization falls apart and all our soldiers have to hitchhike home. And oh my God, and the fall of the empire. And I don't know about all of that, Wait, man. You know what? Those movie? kind of things never truly. We come should write true that movie, that Soul Soldiers Hitchhike Home. That's a good oh. one. Oh, I never heard that. You're no, saying I'm we saying should we, right now? Yeah. I mean, I we, mean, I can see it. Yeah. All right. You guys uh, are on your own out there, man. <laughs> uh, okay. So I have found, in terms of following uh, the situation in Ukraine, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor to be the most Woo! interesting source. Um, He's great, man. He, he, uh, yes. Lately, though, some of the things he's saying are pretty um, astounding um, and that he's predicting that, you know, it's the fall of NATO. We're not going to make it to elections. Uh, it's the end of the U.S. dollar. He's just he's been making some more radical claims over the last two or three months. Um, there was one thing that I heard him say on a podcast that caught my ear because uh, I've been following the ESG scores and yelling about BlackRock a whole bunch. And he was kind of talking about how the Ukraine war uh I, I forget the specifics, but it, it, there was a statement basically about 
BlackRock swallowing up a lot of, uh, I guess, very important resources in the Ukraine. And I hadn't heard any reporting. I hadn't heard anyone make similar statements. But it kind of made sense to me in terms of just everything I see in America of, like, the most evil corporation Mm -hmm. that seems to have the most power tied in with the Fed and kind of tied in with the current administration. Uh, So I, I just... In terms of looking for a villain, I get fascinated by BlackRock's story specifically. He was the only one who even mentioned that name in conjunction with Ukraine. And so I was curious if there was any, uh, if you had any more insight into that particular storyline of BlackRock's involvement in the Ukrainian war and kind of trying to, you know, uh, I guess swallow up like important geopolitical uh, resources. Yeah. Well, on the first part, I mean, Colonel McGregor has been. From the beginning, he called it right. I think he probably thought the war would be over a lot faster than it was. But he did say that ultimately just the Russians have more money and more men and more armor and more artillery. And they're going to win at least as much territory as they want to sooner or later. And that the Ukrainians should deal now. They should have dealt before. They sure as hell should deal now. Now we're in a situation where they're so broken, they're... You know, they had regained Kharkiv and Kherson, and it looks like maybe now they could lose them again since their, you know, current counteroffensive has gone completely to hell. And they're not really prepared to defend themselves the way the Russians had because they've been preparing for an assault for eight months or whatever it was that kept getting delayed. So it looks, it really looks like the high watermark of the Ukrainians' effort here was last September. And and that now look they're even at risk of losing Odessa and which would you know completely cut Ukraine off from the sea and would be you know major loss for Ukraine a major gain for Russia that is getting a little bit ahead which is actually what I was about to say was when it comes to NATO's going to fall apart right Ukraine's going to lose the war the NATO's going to fall apart then the dollar's going to break and society's going to collapse and they'll suspend the election and all that ah, I don't go for that anytime you got to make you know, quite a few predictions in a row like that. It's not going to line up. It's not going to come out that way. Each of those things might be a worry, right? Or like you might celebrate NATO falling apart, but you know what I mean? That like um, these, you know, I don't know about suspending elections and all that. That never happens. People always say that and that never happens. But, um, but all right, you know, we are, look, yeah, they got us in a situation that they absolutely should not have gotten us in that does risk escalation of major power war and general nuclear war. They have no right to raise the risk the way that they have done. And they should be negotiating now. It should be absolutely unanimous among all Americans and all people on the planet that we just demand diplomats sit at tables and hash this out. We cannot continue to have this level of violence 300 miles from Russia's capital like this. And is there any truth, though, to the uh, BlackRock snagging? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yes, there is. There's, um, and this is in the book. I have a whole kind of section about this, about the war profiteers who are coming for all that land. There's uh, a lot of really rich farmland that they want there. I understand that there's rich farmland, and I've also heard... It used to be illegal for foreign corporations to own it, but now they've changed that. It's part of the deal. And then what about, is there anything to, I've also heard claims of there being a lot of lithium, which is important to like. I don't know about that. Okay. I don't know. I'll Um, try to make sure and not leave that out. I'll look that up. I can, I can actually, if you follow up with me, I have a couple articles on that. I'd like to see them. Yeah. Um, All right. The next storyline that I have found fascinating in regards to Ukraine and 
Uh, sorry, I had a couple beers, and so I'm not remembering the account. Oh, I think it's clandestine on Twitter, which is a very interesting follow. And when, by the way, I just want to be clear. When I say something is a very interesting follow, that means sometimes like I'm like, this is a fascinating storyline. Sometimes I, I look at them, and I'm like, I think this makes sense. But like, it, it's not highly validated, so I don't like hop on it. But one of his claims at the beginning of the war was that essentially Putin actually had a clear path to victory here. And that there was, and by the way, I might be editorializing here, but I'm, whatever, I make things a little more interesting by bullshitting a little bit. So, uh, (laughs) Putin had a clear path to victory and that there were biolabs in the Ukraine that were being used by the U.S. um, and they were highly illegal and maybe even being used specifically to research, uh, um, I guess, uh, viruses that can affect some ethnicities more than others, or might have even been correlated to uh, bioweapons research like COVID, but basically just illegal bioweapons labs. And I guess the claim was that, for one, Putin wanted to put an end to those labs, and that also he might be able to walk away with certified evidence of, look at what the U.S. is doing, which would then, I guess, win over some world favor, maybe even the U.N. would be forced to kind of reconcile with illegal behavior of the United States government. Mm. Is that a storyline or anything that you've seen that, like, might be true? Well, uh, the first part about it, he had a clear path to victory, but then he didn't take it, I think is right. That they invaded from, what, four or five different directions at once, and then they got turned back in all five of them. And if they had combined their forces and just marched straight to the capital, right. they would have taken the capital and had their say and could have turned back around and smashed what was left of the army and whatever. But I'm just speaking that- from this is not a moral yeah. take. This is we're just talking about a practical point of view in answer to the question. Did the Russians essentially, you know, blow the advantage that they had when they started the war? Absolutely, they did. But it looked uh, or at least <laughs> maybe I'm also editorializing uh, McGregor here. It seemed as if uh, Putin was purposely almost looking to conduct a siege to force them to negotiate and that he would like he it almost looks like he wants to take as little of Ukraine as possible uh, because he doesn't want to have to manage it. And he's got like, you know, the eastern territories. He really what he wants from Ukraine is just they're not going to be in NATO. He's not going to have missiles there. Well, that ship sailed last summer. I mean, right. When when they took Kharkiv and Kherson. The Ukrainians took back Kharkiv and Kherson in last September. The Russians said, oh, yeah, well, we're hereby annexing Zaporozhye and Kherson provinces, too. So how do you like that? And they don't control all that territory, but they, like, you know, ratified it in their parliament and everything that this they're calling all of those official territories, not just Donetsk and Luhansk, but now Zaporozhye and uh, Kherson as well, all the way to um, Crimea. So... Um, now, as far as the and look, I think Daniel Davis, uh, I actually have a great block quote in the book of Daniel Davis explaining how they invaded from too many directions at once and they screwed it up. Even if they wanted to lay siege to Kiev, if they'd combined their forces and gone straight to Kiev and surrounded it and dictated their demands and whatever, that might have worked. Instead, they got turned back. And, and, and in fact, it was right when they were negotiating and and the Americans, of course, then ruined the negotiations. So it actually, in a way, you could say it was working, that they were, by getting that close to Kiev, they were putting pressure on Kiev, and Kiev was then willing to negotiate with them. But then Boris Johnson came and said, no way, you got to ruin this deal. And this was in, you know, last March of 22, um, and came and ruined the deal, ruined the negotiations, and said, you'll lose all American and British support if you do that. 
and so they kept the war going. So anyway, and then on the other points about the biological weapons labs or biological germ labs of some kind, yes, it's true there were some. And I don't know the depth of it, but I do know that my guy Dave DeCamp at AntiWar.com wrote like 10 pieces about it. I just know I haven't read them yet. <laughs> They're like right. open tabs on my pile that yeah, I swear I'm going to get to one day. And, and the thing is about Dave DeCamp is he's a brilliant genius. And so no matter what kind of hype you hear about those things, he's going to separate the BS for you. Um, Like really, the flight path has to be directly over the yard. <laughs> okay, not not a All little right, bit so, over, but but yeah. anyway. So, I believe the story in very rough outlines. And by the way, Victoria Newland told Congress that this was true about a week after all the news was saying what a crazy conspiracy it was. She told Congress, "Well, yeah, you know, there's all the biological labs and whatever." So, I think the way that I understand it was that they were Soviet labs during the battle days, and that at some point the Americans took them over and at least the official story was they're safeguarding these germs and or if they're studying them they're studying them for biodefense purposes that if anybody's ever going to use these germs as a weapon we want to be able to combat them but of course that's always a double-edged sword as we've seen with COVID it looks you know what 98 percent likely that this is part of a biodefense project that got out and killed a couple million people all right so uh We've spent an incredible amount of money in this war, uh, and it's almost hard to track because every month there's like they pass a new bill, sending a bunch of money over there. And I know, I, th I believe it was Rand Paul tried to pass, hey, let's at least audit how much money is going over there. And just to speak to how bad we are at distributing money, you look at the uh, PPE loans over COVID. And like 50% of them went to fraud. A lot of them went abroad, which actually, humorously enough, might have actually helped with inflation. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, but um, like a massive amount of it went to went to fraud, abuse, and abroad. Um, you look at all the money that's being sent to Ukraine, which obviously we're not tracking. What percentage of that money do you think? And I know you can't put a firm figure up, but like. What percentage do you think actually even gets spent on, I mean, even our own Pentagon fails audits over the time. So, you know, if we're just sending money over there uh, to Zelensky, like how much of it do you think just ends up in Zelensky's pocket? How much ends up in General's pockets? How, like, oh, I, I don't know how you calculate down, it. I mean, I think the, the best way to understand is that most of that money never leaves the United States, right? It goes from the Treasury st straight to the weapons manufacturers. Same thing with the $4 billion we give Israel every year. So that all goes to Raytheon, not all, but much of it goes to Raytheon and Lockheed and all that. And the deal is, you want our aid, you got to take our weapons. And it's just a welfare So we're never program, sending them the money to spend. Well, I'm not saying never at all and, right. you know, whatever. But I think the bulk of it goes to these weapons manufacturers. And then, yes, they are giving billions in aid. I mean, they're, I would have recommended if I worked for him that, like, don't say that, Mr. President. But he goes out there and he's like, look, somebody has to pay the salaries of all the teachers and garbage men and civil servants of Ukraine. And it's like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, you're just going to, Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, who's going to pay them if not us? It goes without saying. They don't even think how that sounds to us. They're like, man, that was my money. You piss it away on just... It's such an insult. It's just crazy. And you know what? Like, I've always hated the IRS so bad. But I hate them even more now. They're coming after me. They want so much money from me. 
And I know that every cent of that is just going, what, to buy like a wheel for a tire that they never even bother putting on a plane they don't use anymore. <laughs> they just fucking take my money and throw it away, dude. Some bullshit. And then, like, if I'm lucky, they'll put it to good use, killing some conscript over there, you know? So it fucking sucks. <laughs> I hate them so much. So l let's talk about the, because, uh, you know, to me, it, it's it, it's underreported. Uh, from what I understand, the Ukrainian deaths dwarf, uh, uh, I think, everyone that was lost on the American side in the Vietnam War. And, uh, I mean, you can tell me if maybe that's inaccurate. I think that's probably about right, actually. We right. lost 58,000 American GIs died in Vietnam. And I think the Ukrainians are probably in high, high tens of thousands. I don't know exactly. Everybody lies so much about the other side's casualties, and everybody lies so much about how low theirs are, too. You know, they said from the beginning, oh, we wiped out 35,000 Russians. It's like, really? Damn, that must have been one hell of a battle. Where can we see footage of that? Like, what? No, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I have seen really high estimates of Ukrainian deaths, and I don't know where they base that on. I think it must be, if you told me 100,000 or maybe some more, I'd buy that, I guess. <laughs> um, but, um, and then, then, of course, wounded outnumber the dead by usually the ratio is three to one I think there's a lot of guys losing their legs and their parts over there um, it's such a brutal war I don't know if you guys have seen footage of it or whatever but it's you know I don't know if you were if you're a GI in a Humvee and you got blown up by an IED that's pretty damn bad for you but this is just widespread trench warfare tank rounds and artillery and mines and just dudes getting blown to fucking bits dude it's the ugliest goddamn thing it is just horrible all right so uh last ukraine war question and then we'll uh pivot to another topic uh you and i i it was actually it was a full year ago when i was uh working on my uh end of year misinformation thing and i was trying to do a piece on the ukraine war uh, and I, I didn't make it funny enough to put out, so it ended up just uh, buried in a podcast. <laughs> oh, man, there's so much hilarious <laughs> shit going on. Yeah, I tried. Well, you know, that's the problem when you go right from your apartment to doing it once to like that. Yeah. You know, all right, whatever. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah, it, the, the most important thing in the world is not whether or not my jokes work. <laughs> Occupational hazard, Exactly. Man. You got to try them out. Um, but you and I were having a conversation where I was talking about uh, – and you, you were very gracious. You took my phone call. We spoke about an, for about an hour, and I was just trying to wrap my head around the U.S. strategic interest in terms of taking out the pipeline. I think it's clear, even though there's plausible deniability, I, I don't think anyone took out that pipeline without our blessing. And you even had Biden before and saying, hey, we got ways to take that out. And it seems like that was a uh, going into the war, the powers that be had in their mind, hey, we need to take out this pipeline. Uh, and to you and I, we're like, hey, this is great, fucking free trade. You know, what? like these people are going to have cheaper uh, natural gas. They're going to get provided for. Everyone's getting along. You know, the free trade creates the incentives to get along. This is great. And on that call, I think you just said it's just good old-fashioned mercantilism. So I hand it back to you just like, is that what this is all about? It's just the elites trying to, you know, lock down some of their special interests. Well, it's never all, right? It's always a giant conspiracy of interests coming together to support right. policy, right? So, yeah, you know, Rand Paul had a great piece in the American Conservative magazine that I believe was a speech he must have given on the Senate floor where he points the finger at Ted Cruz, his buddy, 
and says, you think it's a coincidence that this Texas senator is spearheading the effort to, and, you know, just demanding and pressuring all the time for Trump to do whatever he could to stop the Nord Stream pipeline? They're massive corporate interests in Texas who want to liquefy natural gas and sell it to the Germans. And that's huge. It's billions of dollars, you know, uh, over whatever time scale. I don't know exactly, but it's serious ass business. It's not nothing. Um, so that's definitely part of it. Um, and you could even like maybe keeping on that same story, zoom out. And it's part of the grand strategy going back a century of British and American domination of Eastern Europe. And so the whole idea is that the worst thing that could happen is that you would have an alliance between the Russians and the Germans because then we're frozen out and everyone stuck between them is subject to their decisions, you know, and, and to their markets and we're frozen out of their markets. I mean, this is a lot of what caused the world wars was the British, you know, absolute panic at losing access to these Eastern European countries. And so, um, there's a guy from, I guess, the 1880s and 90s, I think, uh, a British imperialist. His name was Halford Mackinder. And he's the one who coined all this stuff that you hear from Zbigniew Brzezinski about. You have to control Ukraine and control Afghanistan con to control the world island. And he who controls the world island controls the world and all of this stuff, which is... You know, these are naval doctrines of British imperialists who we're supposed to somehow be different from or whatever. But instead, they've just completely adopted this strategic thinking. And, you know, I learned this great anecdote. Did anybody listen to my 13-hour long Waco thing <laughs> I did? So there's this great rap in there that Dave Hardy gives. And thank you, guys. I'm glad that you listened to it. Um, I hope you got something out of it. Um, but Dave Hardy gives this great rap about how he was a federal cop in the Department of Interior or something. And he says, so how it works in the government is there's the truth and there's falsity. And then there's our position. And our position exists on an entirely separate plane from truth and falsity. It has nothing to do with it. It's what we agree that we've decided we are saying so that we can do the thing that we've decided we want to do. Truth, falsity, and our position. And they get married to our position. And they tend to not ever really think about it. Like, well, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent there, but... So our position here is NATO spreads peace wherever it goes. And whenever we add new members to NATO, that spreads peace and security and after all, we have our nuclear umbrella, which doesn't mean we can shoot down incoming nukes. It means, which we can't. It, they, they lie and steal a lot of money, trying to claim they can, but that's different. Um, but what that means is that if you're an ally of the United States, no one will ever mess with you because that means messing with us and everybody knows you know, how strong we are. So that means if we add everyone from Slovakia and Slovenia all the way to Beijing, ultimately to our alliance that all we're doing is spreading peace and stability and the rule of law and all of these things and there's got to be some truth to the idea that like slovenia and slovakia are not going to fight over their line because they got too much at stake as members of the nato alliance and their whole chain of command is built up with each other and all their neighboring states and every kind of thing 
there's a rule that to be part of NATO, you have to have civilian control of the military. No dictators in, you know, olive green. You have to have regular elections and all that to be. So you see how virtuous it all is? Just like the British said, the British Empire was just all about, you know, um, establishing the rule of law and independent judiciaries and parliamentary democracies. And, you know, like the Monty Python bit about the Romans building the roads. Like uh, the British are only imperializing you for your own good. And the Americans in charge, they really do believe this stuff. You can hear it in the way that they frame everything. They know that they are Superman and the other guys Lex Luthor. They know they're the good guys. And they're up against this other guy, so who does that make the other guy? The other guy's the bad guy. He's got to be. And why does he do the things that he does? Because he's bad. And who could argue that Bin Laden's a good guy or Vladimir Putin's a good guy? Well, what's the opposite side of the argument? He's a bad guy. And his badness is what motivates him to do what he does, which means that everything that we do is simply defensive to counter the bad. America's the candle in the dark, holding back the barbarians. And they just tell them themselves this shit all day long. And it doesn't matter how many millions of people that they kill or how busted they are in the lies that they tell. They just keep on. Sucks. All right. It, and so what was the original question about Ukraine? I'm gonna hit. Let's pivot. Let's okay. pivot. We're gonna close it out. But before we do, uh, firstly, Scott's got a pile of books. Uh, Fool's errand. Oh yeah, I'm giving them away. No, enough already. Yeah, oh. I just I got a box full. If anybody wants a book. Okay, and then uh, for the home audience, why don't you why don't you plug uh, antiwar.com and uh, the books you got? Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, and I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, and it's fundraising time at the institute right now. Slash donate. And check out our great team and all the great stuff we're doing there. We just published Lori Calhoun's brand new book, Questioning the COVID Company Line, which is fantastic. It's a collection of all the essays that she wrote all the way through that stuff, proving how right she was about everything all along, of course. Um, and um, we got, and then we can find my books there as well. Fool's Aaron on Afghanistan, Enough Already on the War on Terrorism. Ron Paul, a collection of my speeches, the great Ron Paul, it's called, a collection of my interviews of him and the speech I gave about how great he is. And then uh, Hotter Than the Sun is about nuclear weapons. And uh, got a great crew at antiwar.com and at the Libertarian Institute. And then I do a show called The Scott Horton Show. I got 6,000 interviews going back to 2003. And I'm on the radio in LA on Thursday afternoons, 90.7 FM. And I think that's it, dude. Cool. All right, so let's close it out. One last question. We'll keep it to five minutes. I like to do exactly an hour. I don't know. It's my OCD and me. All right. Um, I want to hear about the, uh, well, I, I already know about it, but I'd like to share it with uh, the people listening, the people out here. I want to hear about the Bill Hicks, Scott Horton influence. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, let's see. So I found Bill Hicks, pretty sure the way I remember it is I found him right after he died, which would have been in i believe march of 1994 how old were you so let's see i would have been uh what 18 and right yeah um and uh what well, was sane man rantney minor hadn't come out yet i think kevin booth put out rantney minor like in the summer it's a great something. title by the way oh and it's such a great album oh right. man and like even the dated stuff it's not it's so good dude and if well, people haven't heard that and it's weird because there's different versions of it going right. around now but the original best kevin booth cut 
of Rantney Minor is the best comedy album I've ever heard in my life. I must have heard it a so thousand I, times. I, I'm not it's so uh, good. And Sane Man is great too, but I don't. Bill Billick's icon great. Work in a similar comedy style as me, or I'm imitating a similar comedy style to what he had. He's not really one of my guys. I don't know all of his stuff, but his joke about CNN and the crickets is still as true yeah. today. 30. He did a great cricket, didn't he? Yeah. I, have, do you guys know this joke? I, all right, I'm good. You you could actually you know him by heart. You might as well. You'll do it better than me. But it's yeah. like just guys, to set it up. This joke is 30 years later still hilarious, and like just summarizes everything about the media perfectly. Yeah, I can do it too. It's, if if people, you guys, some of y'all might be too young. CNN was owned by Ted Turner, who was married to Jane Fonda. Anyway, he says, I don't know if you guys ever watched CNN for say like 30 hours in a row. This was back when it was headline news every half hour. Uh, man, I do not recommend it. War, famine, death, AIDS, homeless, recession, depression. War, famine, death, AIDS, homeless, recession, depression. And then you look out your window and he does this great like birds chirping. And it's like beautiful sunshine outside. <laughs> it's like, where is this shit happening, man? <laughs> Ted Turner can't get laid. He makes up all this horrible shit. By 1994, we'll all be dead of AIDS. Read that on the air. <laughs> I don't get laid. Nobody gets laid. <laughs> I'm writing Jane Fonda. Will you please fuck this guy? We can get some good news. <laughs> hey, everything's going to work out. Here's sports. <laughs> all right. I think that so, was it. Uh, back to you. I, I, one, I, it, it's not really allowed in comedy to do covers. But one night we're gonna have to do the Bill Hicks, uh, Scott Horton night, and just uh, let you. Let, oh, let you, I don't let know. Cover it. <laughs> yeah, I would have to get like the blessing of, of yeah. Booth or something. But uh, I do have virtually all that shit memorized. It just, yeah. I don't I've know. been, I, I've been I, in I a car so late at night with, uh, where I'm, I'm pretty high, and Scott just treats me to Bill Hicks, and he just, does, and I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, all right, so Scott, tell us the the Bill Hicks, Scott Horton influence, age eighteen. You discover him. He's covering well, these topics. Well, you know, as I said tonight, it was true in my yeah. bit that I had always considered. People told me my whole life I was going to grow up to be a stand-up comedian. And I had always considered that. And one of the reasons that I never really even considered seriously trying it was because Bill Hicks was so great. And I just thought, I don't have any business doing that unless I'm as good as him. Nobody, you know, and I, I'm stupidly also decided that I don't want to be a writer because I was comparing myself to the best writers. And I knew people who were just brilliant, just 30 IQ points on me, who I could never write as good as them. And I had this idea that, like, I was like a snob on their behalf. Well, I shouldn't be writing if that's like a real smart guy's business. And I'm not that fucking smart. So I'm going to not be a writer. And then I'm not as funny as Richard Pryor or Bill Hicks, so I guess I'm going to not try to be a comedian. Here's what and then I for learned. some reason I had a Wait, different standard I... for radio, which right. was the guy that comes on Rush Limbaugh is so fucking stupid. I know I can <laughs> do that, which is a totally different standard, right? Like I'm better than the worst guy on the radio. That's the job for me. So you don't have to be as funny as any of those people. You just have to throw your own shows in backyards. <laughs> I guess so. You All found right. a good niche, All man. Right. Let's close it out there. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great oh, yeah. evening, everybody. Thanks, guys.